0: Well, of course, December is the month in which we remember that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, came into the world as a newborn baby. This time is often called Advent, which is a Latin word uh, meaning arrival. So we actually are celebrating the arrival of the Messiah. Of course, it wasn't an arrival that was unexpected. The coming of the Messiah had been prophesied in many ways throughout the Old Testament, beginning in Genesis the one prophet who probably had more to say about the coming of the Messiah than any of the others was Isaiah. The details of the Messiah's coming are so specific and numerous in his book that, his, that the book of Isaiah is oftentimes referred to as the fifth gospel. We're going to spend four weeks looking at four specific sections in the book of Isaiah that all speak in great detail about the Messiah and what he would accomplish when he arrived. They are called the Servant Songs. They're in Isaiah 42, 49, 50, and 53. They're called Servant Songs because the Messiah is spoken of as the servant of God. They show up in the second half of the book of Isaiah. The second half of Isaiah begins with Isaiah 40. Well, Beginning with chapter 40, God gave Isaiah multiple messages that were meant to give comfort and encouragement to the people. This, was important. this is important for us. I mean, there's so much comfort and encouragement in these chapters. But it was also important for the people of Israel, for the people of Judah in particular. In some earlier chapters, Isaiah had prophesied that in the future, the people of Judah would be attacked and destroyed by the Babylonians. Many of the survivors of that attack would be carried off to Babylon to be held in exile there. Well, that was still many years in the future uh, in in, in Isaiah's day. Uh, In fact, in Isaiah's day, the greatest threat to Judah was Assyria. Babylon had not even arisen as a superpower yet. So even though the prophesied attack by the Babylonians was still many years in the future, the people of Judah, especially those who were truly committed to the Lord, were going to be distressed about that. So it's in that context that these Advent songs of the servant were written. So as part of this message of encouragement, Isaiah wrote about the glorious character of God in Isaiah chapter 40. Glorious God who just does glorious things. And part of what he did to communicate the glory of God was to compare and contrast him with idols, which he especially does in chapter 41. He speaks of them really as gods, but they would be little g gods. Well, then in chapter 42, we see that the one true God reveals his servant, who he will send to bring true hope and true help to the people. And it's the arrival of that servant, of course, that we celebrate in Advent, Advent. Each of the servant songs that we'll look at deal with different aspects of who the servant is and what he would accomplish. There's a lot of overlap, but there's also some unique emphases in the individual songs. One of the key emphases in Isaiah 42 is the servant's ministry, especially to people who are hurting and so broken that many are tempted just to give up on them. So let's read Isaiah 42, 1 through 9. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. To open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. There's two main things that we're going to be considering this morning as we look through these verses. First one is this, is who the servant of God is. Uh, He's described in some pretty remarkable ways, talking about who he is. Second, we're going to talk about his ministry. What was he called to do? Every person in the world, no matter who they are, can benefit greatly from his ministry in their life. So, first, behold the blessed servant of God. That's really how verse 1 begins. Behold my servant. This, of course, is God the Father who is speaking. Now, to behold, is to, like, call your attention to something, to to get you to think carefully and to give careful observation to this. So the Lord is saying, I want you to give careful focus on my servant and who he is and what he will accomplish. Now, before we do that, we need to take a note of the last three verses of chapter 41. Because they give the context for this opening phrase in Isaiah 42. So the last three verses, starting in verse 27 of Isaiah 41, says this. Formerly I said to Zion, Behold, here they are, and to Jerusalem I will give a messenger of good news. But when I look, there is no one, and there is no counselor among them, who if I ask can give an answer. Behold, all of them are false. Their works are worthless. Their molten images are wind and emptiness. And then he says, Behold my servant." There are multiple beholds in those last few verses. Here we see first the one true God says, Behold, I've provided prophets for you people to encourage your faith and to bring good news to you. But the problem is that the ones that the people were looking to for help and, uh, and, and, and for understanding and for insight were not his prophets. They were looking elsewhere. They were looking at false teachers who were committed to false gods. So in verse 29, the Lord says again, behold, but now his purpose is to point out that these idols are false gods. They will not and cannot lead you into what is right and into what is true. In fact, all of their works, all of their teachings, all that's associated with them is what he would call worthless, just like wind, emptiness. Then he says, behold, I want you to consider that. I want you to think about that. So just because, we learn here, just because someone claims to be telling you what is true doesn't mean that they are telling you what is true. Just because someone tells you that their way is the right way doesn't mean that it is. Just because they present their ideas as things that will give us hope doesn't mean that they will. In fact, unless what they say is consistent, with the word of God, then what they are peddling is worthless. Well, Lord uses this contrast in the opening words of His first servant of His first servant song to make His first point about who the servant is. So, point A: the servant of God is far superior, far superior to anything else a person would look to for help. One of the things that Isaiah prophesies about is the coming of one that God would use to bring deliverance to the Jews when they did find themselves in captivity in Babylon. Um, In Isaiah 41.25, this man is described as one from the north. Later in Isaiah 45, verse 1, he will be named as Cyrus. Cyrus would end up becoming the king of the Persians, who God would use to ultimately defeat the Babylonians. And in defeating the Babylonians, Cyrus would then allow the captive people of Israel to return to their land. All that was many years in the future. That would truly be an amazing deliverance, and really what makes it even more amazing is that Isaiah prophesies of him by name 175 years before he was even born. He was not a believer, but he would be a man that God would use in very important ways for the people of God. And as amazing and encouraging as all that would have been, The servant of God is far superior to Cyrus, who he's also going to be talking about. Actually, he's far superior to any civil magistrate, no matter who they may be. Knowing about Cyrus would give the Israelites hope, but Cyrus would not be able to change their lives like the servant could. Well, not only is the servant of God superior to anyone in civil government, he is absolutely superior to any false religion any false teaching, any idol. The people of Israel had things that they were looking to to give them assurance that things were going to be okay. But none of those things would truly be able to come through for them in the long run. Same is true for us. I mean, if we were to say, I feel good about what's going on in my life or my, my future because... And we could fill in the blank of what kind of things might give us hope for the future, what make us feel good. And it could be some practical things. I've got some money in the bank. I've got a reliable retirement. I've got a car that runs. I've got a house to live in. have got plenty of food to eat. I've got a job. I've got friends and family who care about me. I mean, all those are really great provisions of God. But ultimately, the one thing that can make us feel good, so to speak, about life it's the Lord, and it all ends up coming back to him. So the servant of God is far superior to anything else that a person can look to for help. Now, there's more we need to consider here as we behold this servant of God. In these chapters in Isaiah, and of course, we're not going to be able to look at everything, but I'm trying to give you a brief idea of some of the context here. In these chapters in Isaiah, the prophet not only uses the term servant, to refer to the Messiah. He actually used the term servant to refer to Israel as a whole. And it can be a little tricky as you read through these chapters to make sure that we are making correct distinctions about the term servant. One of the commentators that I have used to help me understand Isaiah is a man named Alan McRae. He was an Old Testament professor at Westminster Seminary. And the next point in your outline is a summary, really, of his ideas as I understood them about what Isaiah means when he speaks of the servant of God. So here's what it says. The servant of God, being Israel, has been given responsibility with great implications for the whole world. But there is one in particular, the Messiah, who will accomplish that God-given work. So when Isaiah speaks of the servant of God, he's speaking of Israel. Israel was called to live as the people of God. And through Abraham, we are told that it was, that it was through one of his descendants, which would be some of the people, one of the people of Israel, through, through them all the families of the earth would be blessed. Well, we see in Galatians 3 that Paul gives some important insight on how this would happen. He said the promise that was spoken to Abraham in reference to all of his descendants, which would be Israel, Paul points out that the word for that descendant was actually not plural, but singular. And he says that the singular descendant that would accomplish this work was Christ, the promised Messiah. So what we see here is responsibility was given to Israel as the servant of God that would have implications for the whole world. But in reality, there was one Israelite in particular Who would accomplish that work? And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. I think those are some helpful ideas to try to understand accurately, I think, uh, who the servant is in Isaiah 42. The one we are giving careful attention to, the promised Messiah. One more thing we need to take note of as we behold the servant of God, and that's this. The servant of God is the delight, the delight of God the Father, and anointed by God the Spirit for his world-changing gospel work. Servant. I mean, what an amazing term to use for the eternal Son of God. It's probably not one we would have picked. But it's just one of many terms. For example, earlier in Isaiah 7, and you're all familiar with this, where all these things are going to come up in uh our uh, Christmas and Advent readings. In Isaiah 7, he is called Messiah. The Messiah is called Emmanuel, God with us. In Isaiah 9, which Austin read earlier, he is a son. He's a child given to us. He's one that is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. In Isaiah 11, he is described as a shoot, that springs forth from the root of Jesse. And this shoot becomes a branch that bears fruit that ultimately affects the whole world. We, as he sang one of our hymns this morning, taken directly from Isaiah chapter 11. Well, now, here in chapter 42, he's called a servant, a glorious servant with a truly unique relationship with the Father. And as the servant, he has a work to accomplish. We also see in verse 1, it says, The servant of God is upheld by the Father and all that he does. The idea of, of, of being upheld is the word to sustain or to, to hold fast. And it refers to, divi- to the divine aid that the Father will give to his servant. Again, we're going to look at a number of different connections to the New Testament because so much of these things just kind of run through Isaiah that we see very directly in the New Testament, because in this situation, Jesus Christ spoke of his absolute dependence on the Father when he was carrying out his ministry on the earth. For example, there's plenty of places we could look, but John 14, 10, Jesus said this, the words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. So Jesus is confirming What Isaiah prophesied here in chapter 42. We also see further that the Father describes him as my chosen one in whom my soul delights. The servant was chosen, the servant was set apart for a definite purpose, a special work. And there's also a special delight, an eternal delight between the Father and the Son. And it's the overflow, really, of the Father's love and delight in the Son that causes him to send his Son as the servant to accomplish salvation for all who would believe in him. Now, this delight is also seen in the New Testament, in the Gospels. For example, in the transfiguration. Jesus was transfigured before three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. And when this took place, a voice came from heaven that said, this is my son, my beloved son, my chosen one. Listen to him. You can hear the delight. You can see the relationship, the father to the son in those words. Furthermore, we see in Isaiah 42, 1, that the father says, I have put my spirit upon him. So so God the father sent God the spirit to anoint God the son for his work as the servant. And that's how the Father upholds the Son for his work. He does it through the Spirit. Let's go back to the New Testament. You'll remember, and you probably could figure, could think of this yourself, you'll remember that when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, we are told that the Spirit, like a dove, descended upon him. And once again, the Father says, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The coming of the Spirit on Jesus anointed him for the ministry, for the work that he was to accomplish. And once again, it's in the context of the Father delighting in the Son. So seeing the Father's delight in the Son, it's really also a calling to us to make sure that we're doing the same thing. We're supposed to delight in the Son. And rehearsing some of these truths from like a, Isaiah 42 can help us as far as our delight in the sun to increase. So it's right for us to behold, look carefully at the blessed servant of God. So after giving this really just awe-inspiring description of who the servant is just in this one verse, Isaiah then tells us what he's going to do. So our second main point is this, that has to do with the ministry of the servant of God. The last phrase of verse 1 tells us that he will bring forth justice to the nations. And that's really repeated multiple times. Uh, Look at verses 2, 3, and 4 again. It says, uh, well, end end of of, uh, verse 1, "'He will bring forth justice to the nations. "'He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. "'A bruised reed he will not break. "'A dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. "'He will faithfully bring forth justice.'" He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. So this is clearly one of the most important things that the servant comes to do. So we see then that the servant of God will bring forth true gospel justice, true gospel justice to the nations of the world with a calm certainty. Justice has to do with what's right and true. It is said that the servant will bring forth justice and that he will continue until this justice has been established in the earth. So what does that mean? Well, we have to remember that man was corrupted from what was right and true as far back as the Garden of Eden. When Adam sinned against God by eating of the forbidden fruit, he was justly condemned to death. As a result all people who have been born in a state of sin and misery ever since. So we're all rightly deserving of God's just condemnation. We're told in John 3:17 though that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world might be saved through him. Condemnation has to do with justice. So since Christ did not come to justly condemn the world, that means he would have to do something about man's sin. So as the Father upheld the Son by the Spirit's anointing, Christ lived a perfectly righteous life according to God's law. The Father had great delight in his righteousness. And since the Son, as a servant of God, was perfectly righteous, He could give himself as a righteous sacrifice for man's sin. And that's what he did. And then the Father continued to show his delight in the Son by raising him from the dead after he made that righteous sacrifice for sinners. So, as men, women, and children believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, they'll be forgiven of their sin. The guilt of their sin will be justly removed. Because Christ has already paid for it. And since God is just, he's not going to punish the same sin twice. It's punished in Christ. Therefore, it's not punished in us. And that's just. That's establishing justice. So the guilt of the sin is removed because Christ paid for it with his life. They're also going to receive righteousness from Christ as a gift. So every Christian that stands before God in faith stands before him in perfect righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. That's the way that justice is established in the earth. It's gospel justice. Well, as this message of gospel justice and righteousness is shared by the servants, servants, who are us, little by little, people of all nations will know it. This justice is then brought forth to the nations and established in the earth, just like it was said here. Now, there's no doubt but that this will happen. It says he will bring justice to the nations. It's not, let's just, he's gonna try and let's hope he does a good job. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice. And the nations. So the servant of God is not sweating it out to see if this prophecy is going to come true. He knows it will. And in verse 2, it says, He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in this in the street. A number of things that he might be saying there, but one of the things I think that's saying is this is a calm persistence. This is not running around hand wringing. Because there's so much more to be done. It's calm. There's a calm persistence. The servant's work of bringing gospel justice to the nations will be accomplished through his servants, through the church. The next thing we see about his ministry is this. The servant of God will minister gently, gently to all who are weak and disheartened. Verse 3 it says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. A reed grows in a marsh or along a river bank. It's not a strong plant, and it's here is described as being in a weakened position of being bent over as if it's about to break. A dimly burning wick is speaking of the lamps that they would use. The wick would be a piece of flax and would be laid in a bowl, a bowl with oil in it, and lit. And the fact that it's smoldering here or dimly burning gives the idea that the oil is almost gone. The light's about to go out. So these images are given to illustrate people who are weak, people who are oppressed, people who are in just in, a, in despair. So this is helpful to know that no matter how you are feeling, no matter how hard your circumstances might be, no matter what your diagnosis is, no matter what your label is, the servant of God ministers to you with understanding. He does it for all of us. Interesting again, let's go back to the New Testament. Isaiah 42, 1 through 3 is quoted by Matthew. In Matthew twelve eighteen to 21, in that chapter, the Pharisees had criticized the disciples for eating grain that they had picked from the field because they were hungry and they were picking this grain on uh, a Sabbath. The Pharisees also were, had criticized Jesus for healing a man on the Sabbath. So they really were saying, we despise the way you deal gently with people who have a need. But thank the Lord that was and is a significant aspect of our Savior's ministry. And it's also important to note here the fact that, that passage, this passage is quoted over in Matthew related to Jesus just confirms one of the many confirmations we have that this is talking about Jesus Christ, this servant. There's just no doubt about that. Well, another aspect of the ministry of the servant is this. The servant of God will not fail to complete will not fail to complete his gospel work, though he meets with great opposition. Verse 4 says he will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands, which is representative of the nations as a whole, will wait expectantly for his law. So by saying that he will not be disheartened or crushed, we can see that the work that he's called to do is a demanding work. That being disheartened or crushed kind of goes with it because it's such a hard work and because there is opposition. This idea that it was a hard work was implied earlier when the father says, I will uphold you and put my spirit upon you. So the work of the servant is a demanding work. There is, he has to deal with sin. He has to deal with Satan. He has to deal with hypocrites all around him. He has to deal with uh, civil governments. And even now, several governments all the time in the, world, in the world at large that are against him and what he stands for. But he will not be disheartened. He will not be crushed because of the opposition. The work of bringing forth justice to the nations in the form of true gospel religion has started and is still going forward. The salvation that he's accomplished really has changed our lives if we're Christians. And we can identify with being weak and disheartened. You may feel that way today. We can also testify that it's the servant of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who meets our need. And we thank the Lord that he is still at that work. There's a lot more to be done, but he is still at that work, calmly pressing forward. To further encourage those who would Hear and read the servant's song, the Lord makes sure that we understand why we can be confident in Him. So, in verses 5 through 9, we see this final point God the Lord made these promises to His servant from all eternity. So, there's absolutely no doubt that they will all be fulfilled. Glory to God alone. First phrase in verse 5 is one of my favorite phrases in the whole Bible. Thus says God the Lord. This phrase or something similar to it occurs over and over and over and over in the scriptures. It's a constant reminder that the Bible that we hold in our hand is truly the word of God. Because he says, thus says God the Lord, and then we read it. This is the word of God the Lord. And like I said, this shows up all over the Bible to remind us what we're reading. But it's interesting that we don't really see what God the Lord says until verse 6. There are phrases before verse 6 that are there to emphasize and remind us of who it is that's speaking. He is described as God the Lord. God the Is the word for God used here, especially refers to God as the mighty one. The word Lord is the word Yahweh or Jehovah as it's sometimes uh, spoken. The great I am, the self-existent one, the eternal God who makes covenant with his people. When this God says something, we can be 100% sure that it's true and that it will come to pass. Then we're reminded that this mighty Lord is the great Creator. He created the heavens, and I love the image here. He stretched them out. So He is the one who brought the whole universe into existence, and as far as it stretches out, and we're trying to explore to some degree, but it's uh, it's so it's been it stretched out to what, is, from our eyes, seems to be. Infinite, we can't see the end of it, but God goes beyond what is stretched out in the heavens. So, He's the one who stretches out the heavens, and He's fully responsible for everything in the heavens. Think we can trust what He says that He could do it? And then we see that He created the earth that we live on and all the vegetation, all the things that are a part of it. And not only that, He's the one who creates people like us. He's the one who causes every person who has ever lived, is living now, or will live in the future. He's the one who gives life. We have life today because God the Lord gave us life. That's why we have it. These are things that no one else could ever do these are things that no false god no philosophy of man could ever take credit for it. so since these things are true the promises that the mighty lord makes can be trusted they will come to pass and it's encouraging to hear to me just to see how the lord really just condescends to us to to the to our weakness because I don't know about you, it's probably, maybe it's true of you as well, but I know it's true of me. I'll read that phrase, thus says the Lord, and I can just go right through it to the next thing. I'll read those phrases that remind me I'm reading the word of God and forget this really is the word of God. I know it's a book that's beyond any other book, but sometimes I can forget that. It's just a verse I've known since I was a kid, maybe. You may be in the same place. So he condescends to our sense of just taking things lightly to say, thus says the Lord. Now, let me remind you who I am. Let me remind you who it is that's saying this, because you need to keep that in mind as you read what I'm, as the promise I'm getting ready to make. Now, he's already made some pretty amazing promises in the first four verses. And these are promises, many of them, that would not become reality for another 700 years. Isaiah wrote about 700 years before Christ came. And he's got more promises to make. Verses 6 and 7. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. Now, if you notice here, pronouns change. It's obvious here, beginning in verse 6, God the Lord is speaking to someone. Who is he speaking to? He's speaking to his servant, the Son of God, the Messiah. When did this conversation take place? When did the Father speak to the Son in this way? Well, it was revealed to Isaiah in his day by the Spirit, but it could only have taken place in the eternal councils of eternity past. This isn't some new idea where God thought, hey, let's try this. Maybe this will work. There's all kinds of problems. Maybe this will work. This was in the eternal counsels of God that the Father spoke to the Son and then it's revealed by the Spirit to Isaiah to write it down. Well, the Father emphasized several things. First, the servant was called in righteousness. We've said several things about this, but just kind of remind us that being called in righteousness means that he himself is perfectly righteous that he would live out perfect righteousness, that he was called to fulfill righteous purposes, which was that gospel justice, justice and righteousness are virtually the same word, that gospel justice would be established in the earth. So he's called in righteousness. And the father reaffirms he will uphold his servant and watch over him. And then he speaks of appointing the son as a covenant to the people. This comes comes up again in the second servant song, which is Isaiah 49, and we'll spend more time with that next week. But it's introduced here. A covenant is a binding commitment between two or more parties. The servant is constituted, it says, as as the covenant between God and his people. The people would be those who would become servants of the servant by faith, which is believers, Christians. back to the new testament jesus acknowledged this when he instituted the lord's supper which we'll take later today he spoke of the wine as being symbolic of his blood and he said this is the blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins that's what god says use the covenant for many and he says this is my blood the blood of the covenant Then the mighty Lord makes it clear that this is not just a blessing for Jews. The servant was appointed as a light to the nations. Of course he is. It goes back, he's the one who would bring forth justice, gospel justice to the nations. That's what it said in the earlier verses. By the way, this this promise that the servant would be a light to the nations was quoted in the gospel of Luke in reference to Jesus Christ. When Joseph and Mary... Bring Jesus to the temple to be dedicated to the Lord. There's an older believer there by the name of Simeon. He spoke with them, with Joseph and Mary. He had been waiting for these promises to be fulfilled all his life. He believed these promises from Isaiah 42. And the Lord enabled him to understand who this baby was. That he was the one, Simeon said, who would be a light to the nations just like it was said 700 years earlier in Isaiah 42. We are then told in Isaiah 42, 7, that the righteous work of the servant as a light to the nations, what it would look like. Blind eyes would be opened. Prisoners would be brought out of their dungeons. Those who dwell in darkness would be given light. These are all images of what it means to be spiritually blind. Blind. It's a spiritual blindness that exists because of our sin. And it looks, simply put, it's like this. First, we're blind to the fact of how bad our sin is. It's amazing, and you've probably done this. I know I've done this. It's amazing how often we can realize something we've said, something we've done, that we know is wrong. It's like, well, at least I didn't do that. Or I'm better than so-and-so. It's just amazing or I wouldn't even have acted that way if it hadn't been for him. It's amazing how we have that's part of spiritual blindness, downplaying our sin. As if it's just not really that bad. Everybody else is pretty bad, but I, it's just I'm just not that bad. Yes, we are. We are all really bad. And, and, and that's part of the the dungeon, that's part of the blindness here. The captivity of not being able to see what is reality. The second aspect of that blindness is not being able to see the need for a Savior. If you don't realize you're really that bad, you don't realize you need a Savior. The two things go together. So that sin makes us a prisoner. It's like living in a dark dungeon. But the light of the nations will bring prisoners out of this dark dungeon. Finally, God, the Lord, makes it clear that he gets the glory for this transforming work in the lives of people and nations all over the world. Look again at verses 8 and 9. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. So it's the Lord the eternal, self-existent, covenant-making God who is to get the glory for this work. His very name seals the fact that all that was said about the servant's transformational work is absolutely certain to take place. No false god, no philosophy of man, no idol can open blind eyes and deliver from the bondage of sin. All they can do is cause a person to be even more deceived and even more enslaved to their sin. It's only God who can truly transform a life, and God will not share his glory with another. Now, that may sound selfish to us. Quote here by E.J. Young tells us it's not. It's exactly what should happen. Because glory and praise belong to God alone, he is able to carry through his work, with the servant. Were he to forfeit that which his do is his due alone, he would be as impotent, as impotent as the graven images. Now there's no hint here that another could take the glory, truly take the glory from the Lord. All that's been said and promised lies entirely in his hands. Therefore the praise and the glory all belong to him. Well, if God gives up that glory that belongs to him, then he's just as weak as an idol or a false teacher. Because God's glory is at stake, that means God is jealous to see that all he has promised will come to pass. Because his glory is at stake. He will fulfill his promises and keep his promises. He will do it. That should give us encouragement. God is committed to his glory, and since he's committed to his glory, we have hope. We have all kinds of hope. That means that people who are weak and discouraged, sinful, we all have hope because our God will not give his glory to another. He will finish the work. He will complete. He will do the work that he's promised to do. Finally, we see in verse 9, that God reminds Isaiah, he reminds the people of Israel, he reminds us that he has been faithful to fulfill former prophecies. The Bible's full of examples of that, which we're not going to get into. But if he's been faithful to fulfill former prophecies, then we can trust him to fulfill prophecies for the present and for the future as well. So as we begin this season of remembering the arrival of the servant of God, May we trust him to come to our aid, no matter what our circumstances might be, all to his glory. Lord, we do thank you so much for your word. We thank you that we have just read and talked about things that come under the category of, thus says the Lord. Thank you for your word that you have given to us, that has been handed down to us through all these centuries, and that we know we can trust it as accurately being your word. Thank you for that gift. Thank you for the promises that you have made to us related to Jesus Christ. Just even the fact that he's called us servant is amazing that he, that he realized he has an important work and he's willing to take it on as a servant and accomplish it. And that work has everything to do with every one of us in this room because we need what He, the work that he has done and is continuing to do in individual lives. So thank you for being the glorious servant of God. Thank you so much for that. Help us to grow in our appreciation and our delight in you ourselves. If you're one who's never put your faith in Jesus Christ, has never put your faith in the servant, then you're still in that place where it's talking about being in in, in the dungeon or a prisoner. Um, But there's hope. There's light. Because salvation has been... Provided, So if you have never put your faith in Christ, a prayer like this will be a way to begin. Lord, I realize that I am a sinner. I admit that. And I also realize I need a Savior. And I know my only hope for a Savior is Jesus Christ. And I want to commit my life to him as my Savior. And I want to commit my life to him as my Lord. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment to Christ, you can make it on your tear-off or those who are watching online can reach out to us through the website.